Hello everyone, this is The Game Podcast from The Times and I'm Natalie Sawyer. We thank you for sticking with us during this difficult period. We hope to keep you informed and entertained along the way. We are continuing to social distance, so joining me remotely are Gregor Robertson and Matt Dickinson. Matt, how are you? How are you coping at the moment? Yeah, we're good. We're good. We haven't uh, haven't made the mistake of going back to family monopoly, so that that's helped with uh, <laughs> keeping keep, keeping good relations. We we did have actually have a family sports day last week, and um, it managed to end without tears, um, including not from me. So uh, yeah, we can't we count that as a victory. Family sports day. So what events were in this? Uh, well, it's, you had to make you had to make it up a bit as we went along, but uh, there was one involving a trampoline, um, another involving um, yeah, the wheelbarrow racing didn't didn't go so well. Actually, I'll, I'll have to admit that one. <laughs> uh, it sounds like a fun household, that's for sure, Matt. Uh, Gregor, obviously, it's our well first check of the week <laughs> of your push-up challenge. What did we get up to last time? Forty-eight, was it? No, forty-eight. Yeah. Yes. So where are 40, you at now? Yeah, yeah. Well, have I'm you still stopped 40. now? Because you said that was it. <laughs> to be brutally honest, I'm not going to get much higher than that. I'll need to start hammering protein shakes or eating tins of tuna or something if I want to improve anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I'm still in 48. I'm sorry. I have no improvement to report yet. Oh, Gregor. Never mind. Never, no. mind. Never mind. Well, hopefully by Thursday, maybe even just one extra. Just push it. 49. <laughs> Come on. Then I've got Susie, my girlfriend, laugh, laughing at me when I'm shaking in the last one, remember? <laughs> <laughs> this is true, but ignore ignore Susie and just at least give us 49. That's all we're asking okay, for on Thursday. <laughs> uh, coming up, Gregor will tell us what it's like to face a, a World Cup winner on the pitch and we'll bring you more from Wayne Rooney, who's penned another brilliant column in the Sunday Times this weekend. All that coming up after this. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Now, as the weeks pass without any football up and down the country, it's becoming increasingly clear that football as we know and love it will not be back for some time. Many theories have been put forward as to what looks like it does finally return and behind closed doors looks all but certain. So how can we enhance the experience for the fan and player without anyone in the stadiums? Now, we've got some of the latest suggestions and I'm going to put both, I say, I'm going to put both you, Gregor, and Matt on the spot for these just to get your take on whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. So the first one we're going to talk about is virtual season tickets. So the average championship club has 13,000 season ticket holders. The average League One club has 5,500 season ticket holders. So should fans pay a fee to receive a live stream of all their clubs home and away games? Is that one way of solving the issue, Matt? Uh, well, it's, it's quite complicated, isn't it? I mean, I'm, as a championship club season ticket holder, um, you know, I, I'm sure I reflect a few of quite a few, which is that, look, I can understand if the games end up having to be played behind closed doors, if that's the only way to get them done. But obviously wondering then what happens about, you know, rebates or what happens about access to those games. Um, you know, I think football's got to be, you know, it's, it's juggling a lot of things here, clearly. Club finances 
obviously the broadcasters themselves who have pumped a lot of money into the game and now thinking how are they going to get value for money you know are the games worth less to them if they're crammed in and, and behind closed doors and not the same setting at the same time thinking well what's the audience the audience could be huge so I, th- I don't actually think there is an easy answer to this one because of there are so many conflicting interests but you know one thing the game does have to be clear is that it cannot afford to alienate uh well certainly not alienate the the you know the hardcore paying punters the season ticket holders the loyal punters but also needs to have an understanding of you know the world is a very different place from how it was a few months ago in terms of disposable income so i think there is an awful lot of you know stuff to be talked through with this yeah i mean gregor there is no easy fix no easy solution for this one um but the idea of being able to live stream your own club's home and away games may may lessen the blow a little for some who aren't obviously able to go to games for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I think of all the ideas, this is actually one of the better ones. I mean, I, I can't see how it would work this season. As Matt says, people have already paid their season tickets. And, um, you know, I think finishing the season in in any way possible is the, the pressing priority i think but but if this goes on for longer as it's looking more and more likely that it's going to then clubs need to find a way of making some revenue particularly lower league clubs uh, of of earning some revenue without having fans inside the stadiums um particularly as you know a lot of clubs in lower lower leagues are furloughing their players and if the season is to resume they can no longer do that so they're gonna have to pay players without any revenue coming in so you know I, i think there's some some opportunity to do this. I th- obviously, we'd have to reduce the prices considerably, and possibly, I agree with Matt. It's important that clubs are kind of reaching out and connecting with with their supporters and not alienating them just now. So, a reduced price and some kind of loyalty uh, promise for, of reduced prices when this is all over as well would possibly mm. get get the numbers up a little bit. But uh, as a way of getting some revenue, it's not a bad idea. Now, obviously, it'll be funny if if the streaming events do do go ahead for fans to be able to watch their team in action. But as we know, when when England played in Croatia, uh, where it was behind the closed doors game in that one, the atmosphere was was obviously lacking, and it was a very bizarre match to watch. There is a lot of ideas being put forward as to how they can improve the atmosphere in matches which will be played behind closed doors. One such proposal is to pump fake fan effects into the stadiums to fill the silence left without those thousands of fans cheering on their team. There's also a suggestion of cardboard cutouts of yourself in your seat in the stadium. Uh, In fact, uh, this is happening in Belarus, I'm led to believe, where football actually is ongoing. The defending league champions at Dynamo Brest have started boosting home crowds with mannequins in football shirts adorned with the faces of virtual fans who bought tickets online. So, interestingly, Matt, you can imagine if you're sat at home streaming a QPR game, there will be no fans there, but there may well be mannequins which will make us think at least there are some sort of fans in the stadium. Will that work? Well, it's teeing up all kinds of jokes, isn't it? Everyone, everyone will have their sort of club that they want to uh, take their mickey out of and say, what, you know, will you be able to spot the difference, you know? Uh, <laughs> the, the hybrid library, as it used to be called, and, and, and other, say everyone will have their little target on that. But I... <laughs> I think on the one hand, I heard Paul Barber, the Brighton chief exec, who's one of the same voices in football, talking about this the other day, that they're exploring, you know, 
getting some kind of fan noise. I understand why you'd explore it. I can equally understand it sort of potentially if it's not done well, um, having all the sort of authenticity of canned laughter at a sitcom. Um, so, I, you know, it's one of those to, to be looked at, you know, you sort of think, well, to keep it authentic, are they going to have, you know, the referees or piped out at the sort of appropriate moments or uh you know <laughs> are you going to have make sure that the sort of the the, the jeering uh, and the abuse comes in the right place it's um so yeah it's 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 uh i'd say if i if i was the clubs if i was particularly the broadcasters i'd be looking at it i'd also be very conscious that's almost the worst option is to do it badly gregor as a player i mean as a former player let's say um I can't imagine what it'd be like to play in a game behind closed doors and then actually be playing that game with fake fans in the stands. Does that make any sense to you? No, I mean, look, yeah, there's, there's trying to reach out to fans and then there's the, there's these kind of gimmicks and uh, I don't think there's any mileage in that, to be honest. It's funny, I was thinking about this before and it would be good to have, have some sort of noise like, from a player's perspective because it is so weird when you're playing in a stadium and you can hear every every kind of call or shout you make so clearly, and it echoes around the stadium sometimes. It's a really weird experience, but at the same time, that's right. You know, you can't. This could become really kind of gimmicky, and if it's done badly, then you do risk alienating the the fans at, at the moment. We need to take into consideration very much. Um, I don't know. I mean, I was trying to think of other. Like, what, what about like if there was some kind of goggle box version of fans from the you know, if if you score a goal, that's a, that's the moment you score a goal, and there's no one to celebrate with. And if mm. there was a screen inside the stadium where you could see the fans celebrating at home, like a row row after row of them, something that could connect the people at home to the stadium. It's not easy, but um, so hang on, hang on, Gregor. Box. What you're suggesting, you're kind of suggesting that a stadium should be filled with TV screens. <laughs> no, 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 no. One big screen. <laughs> one big screen and then they'd be like oh just like i like the zoom. idea of rather than having <laughs> i like the idea of not having mannequins but just loads of tv screens everywhere no 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 no. just like just like a zoom zoom picture where there's kind of row oh. after row of fans celebrating and, and you know at least it's some kind of connection look there'll be lots of ideas and most of them will be very bad this probably is as well but at least people are gonna have to show some imagination i think because that's the important thing we can't just do it kind of stone cold sterilized uh, and and don't take any consideration of what the fan experiences. We have to th- think outside the box a little bit. Maybe not a goggle box, though. It did make <laughs> me think, yeah, because if the bro- on that one, the broadcasters, yeah, I mean, if they're clever, and it's, um, yeah, they, they they generally are about how how they try and sort of rev these things up. They're clearly going to have to get somehow. I don't know, get fans involved. I mean, I, you know, I, I think fan TV has its um, uh, limits sometimes, but it's you know you can. I think they would clearly have to try and think creatively about you don't just want some sort of you know well some people might want the sort of shall we say neutral commentary but other people might want to feel more of the sort of fan Mm. you know experienced fan authenticity so maybe they're actually you you end up offering different uh commentaries you know some for you know for, for fans you know of a particular club that want to feel like they're sort of getting the fans eye view of it so if i if i were the broadcasters and we go we are going to end up with behind closed doors games which does seem you know who knows what's going to happen next next week never mind next month but that does seem the most likely option then i would be thinking right we're going to have to 
offer almost different packages here for for people who want different things out of watching a behind closed door game. Mm. And I suppose equally, you're going to have to you're going to have to have somebody who's who's good at sound as well, because when there are moments of teams on the attack and or teams scoring a goal, you want the atmosphere to actually provide that same feeling. So you want to hear a crowd roaring when a goal goes in, or as I say, when a team's on the attack and then there might be the groan of it not working out. Lots of complexities to it all. And, and Gregor, you were mentioning thinking outside the, of the box. How about this from the Danish league leaders, FC Michelin, who have announced plans that will allow 2,000 cars to park around their stadium and watch matches on big screens outside. They say 10,000 fans can turn up and they hope to duplicate the audio from television commentary and make it available in cars through a specified frequency. I mean, that really is thinking outside the box, Gregor. It certainly is, yeah. I mean, I suppose you score a goal and you could hear, at least in fairly close proximity, the roar and maybe some horns beeping and stuff like that. Um, yeah. but, but it's just the whole thing as well. I mean, that I I'm pretty sure that wouldn't be allowed right now here. Um, mm. And also, you know, we saw what happened with... Uh, Paris Saint-Germain in the in the Champions League when fans gather outside and and then players they feel the kind of urge to go out and celebrate with them and and it's the whole the whole issue of you, people are supposed to stay in the house with the people they live with and if fans have any opportunity to meet up and share a car or whatever things like that you know we're we're just kind of getting down into slightly dodgy territory so it would need to be very carefully worked but look at least they are thinking outside the box and that's what we need just now. I mean, Matt, there is an element of trust with this idea from FC Michelin, as Gregor has alluded to there, with uh, expecting fans to stay within their their social um, family groups, let's say, and not be mixing with with other fans. And and obviously, it's a great idea in principle, but obviously over here, a lot of clubs are inner city clubs that wouldn't be able to have fans turning up and parking in cars around the stadium. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I, I think it's a yeah, lovely idea. And if you've got the the chance to do it, and obviously the lockdown arrangements would have to be very different. I, yeah, I think, I think, you know, say the theory of it sounds like it could be great. Is that, you know, it could be the nearest thing you get to that sort of, you know, sense of, because people just want that sense of communion, don't they? I mean, I think that's what we're all missing on a, you know, sort of small level, just, you know, not, you know, not being able to interact with, with work colleagues and friends and neighbours in the same way. And, Obviously, that's one of the huge things we love about going to football games, just that whole sense of sort of community about it. Um, that This could be a creative way around it, but it, it feels like months away from that possibility in England, even, even if it was practical and you had a car park that big. Mm-hmm. And just lastly, Matt, uh, I know Gregor's come up with his own goggle box version for football. Have you got anything that you might be able to add? Well, I d- I d- without sounding too dumb, I mean, I, I, I did spend one, I had one of those weekends where I sort of had a, uh, just a couple of conversations and reading a few things where I suddenly thought, mm, you know, the, the, the idea of getting back when, you know, some of the dates that are doing the rounds, is that just hugely optimistic in any case that you know I'd, I'd, I'd say a couple of articles and a couple of conversations that just made me think all this sort of stuff about you know the Premier League could be um, kicking balls in by the beginning of June suddenly felt say very optimistic to me um, I hope I'm I hope I'm wrong on that I really I really do but yeah that 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 sort of potential timelines have been <laughs> occupying my thoughts I guess um more than anything, but if it if it can get behind closed doors, I say I think I think the the key thing really would be that onus on the broadcasters just to be 
creative and clever without being yeah gimmicky i think that's that's mm. such a fine fine balance to to get right well wayne rooney's sunday times column continues to be a fascinating read this week England and Man United's all-time record goal scorer discusses the art of being a number nine and how scoring goals never came naturally to him. This is what Rooney said. This might surprise you, but I'm not a natural goal scorer. I was never a Gary Lineker or a Ruud van Nistelrooy. I hold the goal records for Manchester United and England, and I'm very proud about that. Yet there have been better number nines than me. It's quite uh, a revelation from Rooney that Gregor. Do, do you agree with what he's saying, or do you think he's being a little bit modest? Uh, I think he is being a little bit modest, but uh, modest. I, but I understand what he means. I think you know it's a fascinating column. I think you know the players he mentions, like Van Nistelrooy or Gary Lineker, they are kind of strikers who are wired a little bit differently. You know, the, the people who they just make make a kind of a beeline for the goal almost every time they get the ball, or any time you know the ball is going into the box, they are they are there on on the spot, and that's that's not really. What Wayne Rooney was, uh, and and the thing, the fact is actually he's, he's because he's better than that. Um, you know, I think he could have he could have done that kind of played that kind of role more than he did. And he, as he says in the column, he did for a couple of seasons at Manchester United, and he scored a lot of goals. Um, but that would almost be to kind of to the detriment of the rest of his wider talents. You know, being able to drop off and and uh, link play. Uh, that, that's the thing. I think he always had an instinct to get to be involved in the in the game more than just someone who's a focal point at the top of the pitch and has to get into the box and get on the end of uh, end of crosses. And I think he had, he, you know, he had all the instincts to do that. You saw some of the goals he scored. I think the, the goal he picked out as his one of his favourites. I think it was against Wigan where he kind of mm. just beat beat the man to the front post and flicked it into the far top corner. Um, he had all of that that kind of uh, instinct in his locker. It's just that. He also had a, a kind of drive and an instinct to to get on the ball and and affect the play in different different ways, and that's what made him such a, a remarkable player. Matt, does it surprise you what what Wayne Rooney has said? He sort of speaks about the mental challenge of playing as a as a number nine, and and perhaps he didn't necessarily have that because he he always wanted, as Gregor said, to drop off to get hold of the ball earlier than than a Gary Lineker, than a Ruud van Nistelrooy. He perhaps didn't have that patience that that goal poaching instinct to just stay up top. Yeah, well, I think it is. A, yeah, I think the you know, strikers, the top strikers, sort of pride themselves on having a slightly different mentality and uh, you know I think Gregor's right his his was just to be involved I think that's you know I think interesting you know when he talked about playing that number nine role and he just felt like he just wasn't yeah getting enough of the ball feeling enough of the part of the sort of pattern of play enough I mean we also have to remember of course he spent a couple of seasons you know basically working his socks off on on the flank for Man United he was you know certainly in quite a lot of big games he could be asked just to to play wide forward and um do a heck of a lot of 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 sort of donkey work as well out there which you know at times felt like it wasn't you know he was a sort of better equipped player than that but that that was that was the job that was required um often to allow Ronaldo to 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 flourish in the middle but he yeah I think I think he is sort of being overly modest in the sense of sort of downplaying therefore I'm not a, you know a natural finisher I think he you know for a lot of his career seemed uh, a very effective finisher but I think it, it was just the fact that he certain players I remember speaking to Burkamp about this the way Burkamp would say that he took as much 
joy from some beautiful assist as he would from a finish you know that that sort of the because that takes a different type of skill to have the vision to spot the movement to tee it up to you know sort of there's a, a almost a greater complexity about trying to work out you know the angle of a pass being a defender getting it to the right guy in in, in the right shape so I, I think it's just almost seeing the game in slightly different ways and different patterns and, and I think Rooney just had that versatility so, uh, as Rooney says, he isn't the best natural finisher. So, who is the best, Gregor? Well, the best the best I saw as a fan and uh, as a kid was was Henrik Larsson. Mm-hmm. He was he was remarkable, and he played it. You know, he played played at Celtic for so long, scored so many goals, and he was always kind of talked down a little bit by 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 pundits down south, actually. Um, and obviously, I was I grew up in in Scotland, so they were. He was spoken about he couldn't do the, do the same thing in the Premier League, and and then the fact that he went to Manchester United and and Barcelona and demonstrated he could do it at the very highest level, and he did it in in Euros and World Cups with Sweden. Um, I, you know, I think it proved what an exceptional talent he was, and and so that's a, someone I saw in the in the flesh, like kind of week in week out, would be Larson. I think, I, I really think um, in England and and kind of afterwards, since, since I was kind of living down here, I think it's hard to look beyond Michael Owen for me. I think the way. I've never seen any. Never been so confident to, when someone's running through, just kind of bearing down on goal. I've never been as confident that it would be a goal as anyone, but Michael Owen. I think mm. he was remarkable, and the way is, you know, we're t- we're talking about Rooney was talking about his longevity and the way that you know that's what helped make him such a a great goal scorer. And and you see, you know, Michael Owen's the kind of counterpoint to that. He was he was someone who who could have broken records, but he's injuries and, and, and whatnot kind of his career didn't work out in the way that he would have hoped in the way that he kind of shone so brightly in those early days. But in those early days there very there really was very few strikers, there have been very few strikers who were kind of so lethal as him and such such an instinct around the box to be in the right place mm-hmm. at the right time and always finding it. Just just one more for you, Gregor, before I get Matt's take on his best ever natural finisher. When you played the game uh, is there anyone that you think stood out for you? And could you even, in just 90 minutes, think, wow, he is a natural finisher just within one game? Um, yeah, I mean, that, again, I'm going to have to be talking about a Scottish player here. But in, in, uh, when I played in the Scotland under-21s, Chris Boyd played for, uh, who went on to play for Rangers, I think. He's the highest goal scorer in Scottish football. And look, he wasn't a great player. That's the thing. A lot of these—that <laughs> sounds harsh—but a lot of these strikers, these guys. I mean, Van Nistelrooy is an exception, but some of these guys are just poachers. They do very sometimes do very little in a game, except kind of provide a focal point up front and get into the box. And that's what Chris Boyd did. Sometimes in training and stuff, it was like—I mean, I, he was really poor. And I'm being polite there. And then <laughs> he would still score the most the most goals. Or he would give him half a chance, and he would just bullet and find the corners, low and hard in the corners every single time, and that's what he made his career from. And that's you know that I think that is what Rooney is kind of alluding to here. There are players who that is their kind of their their reason for being on the football pitch. And so someone like Chris Boyd, who I played with, I saw that firsthand. Uh, he certainly was a remarkable finisher. Matt, we've heard uh, Gregor's take. Then who would you go for as the best natural finisher you've seen? 
Um, well, I mean, this is going to sound stand the bleeding obvious, but I mean, if I, if you know, if you want to give someone a ball and say finish it, you'd you'd start with Lionel Messi, I think, wouldn't you? Just because you know he. I mean, the, the 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 numerous ways he could finish the best dinker the world has surely ever seen. You know, he's a guy who could pass pass it into the net from, you know, anywhere, um, or he can give it a, a blast in the top corner as well. I mean, just yeah, and just the 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 way he keeps his cool, you know, one on ones, you know, keepers, you know, you feel like they're pretty much giving up before before he's even shot. But uh, so no, I mean, he's he's just a. And his goal rate is just ridiculous as well. Um, but I think in terms of the, sort of the English guys I've seen the most, there was a period, yeah, I mean, Alan Shearer's record is phenomenal. And there was a period, particularly I covered Blackburn when they were in their, their heyday and winning the title. And, and Shearer was a phenomenon. I think it's, you know, to say the goal record is exceptional. But also there was just a sense that if he picked up the ball within 30 yards of goal, and had any space at all he was going to score he just had he used to just bulldoze through and he he just buy himself a little bit of space with a you know small turn drop of the shoulder and it just felt like every time he shot from 20 yards it was going to be top corner or bottom corner um so he he certainly jumps out and gregor mentioned michael owen um I did a lot of you know, Michael Owen's columns. We he, he for for the Times for for a while and had a lot of dealings with with Michael and A. I mean, you know, again, phenomenal record. But I, I certainly from dealing with him, I, you know, the mental strength really strikes strikes me. Um, recollecting those conversations about how, you know. <laughs> Even if, even if it might have been his fault, the ability to convince himself it wasn't, the ability to sort of, to stay with a steely self-belief, even if he was going through a, you know, small lull, or even if, you know, he had screwed up, there was some the, the mental strength to just keep coming back for more, to be convinced that you are a brilliant finisher, to be convinced you're one of the world's best, to be convinced that you will grab the next chance. Really, struck me, and it it almost you could say it takes a bit of self-delusion about it it takes a bit of selfishness about it it takes a bit of you know blaming others about it but actually that was what was required to to keep the the absolute conviction that you would score and you would score again um and I think again maybe that's a little bit of what Wayne Rooney is alluding to that some of the guys who are at the best at that that the sort of what we call a natural finisher one of their probably one of the sort of strengths that they share is that ability you know like golfers to somehow just stay with the conviction that okay I messed up the last shot but I'm gonna nail this one that is the kind of the ultimate that is the the one component a striker has that makes them different to anyone else absolutely that was the most important thing that Rooney said in this column and I think he mentioned he was always telling Danny Welbeck to stay on his feet he was always falling over when he was going to strike a ball uh he does Danny Welbeck doesn't mean to do that I mean, I've been that guy falling over. <laughs> Trust me. It's like you get such a rush and a surge when you're in front of goal and it's just you and the goalkeeper. That's the kind of probably the most pressurised moment on a football pitch. And so the guys who are best at being able to completely blank all of that out and zone in and be cool and almost like let time pass a little bit slower, uh, they're the guys who are the best finishers. Well, this is a question we put to our listeners uh, and on Twitter as well. We asked who you think the best natural finisher you've ever seen is. And as you 
will not be surprised. This has got a huge reaction. So many people getting involved. Tim Hardwick suggested Ian Wright. Craig Anderson's gone for Ali McCoy. He says he never missed for Rangers in the 80s and 90s. There has been a lot of love for Ruud van Nistelrooy, Dom Smithers, Rich Metcraft, Chris Goodwin all got involved with that one. Uh, Georgia Rebrov has gone for the Brazilian Ronaldo. Trevor Smith has mentioned Jimmy Greaves. He says most won't have seen him play but uh, he is the one for him. It was like the goalkeeper wasn't there. Uh, Matt Letizia gets a nod as well. This uh, tweet says, just brilliant with either foot, any distance. Shearer, not bad. He could score with his head too. And a few have suggested Shearer. John Alsop also getting involved. Uh, Jamie O'Hara, of course, the, the former uh, Fulham, Tottenham, Wolves midfielder. He's decided to get involved. He's gone for Lee Griffiths, who he would have played with at Wolves. He says he was the, uh, the best natural finisher I'd seen since Jermaine Defoe. And Lastly, this one is the one that got the most votes, it appears on Twitter. Uh, Will Curry, Di Evans, Daryl James, just to name a few who have gone for Robbie Fowler. And yet, Matt and, and Gregor, you didn't ever mention Robbie Fowler. <laughs> I'd happily vouch for him. And in, I mean, again, at his peak was, yeah, I remember a game, in a game, I think it was England, played in Greece in Athens, and he scored a couple of goals, and it looked like the, that was going to be his breakthrough as an England player and he was going to go on to because he did have that yeah again like Gregor says he was one of those guys on that left foot who just seemed you know when anyone else well not say anyone else when when lesser players might rush or panic he just seemed to have that ability just to be absolutely sure of himself you know no rush um but yeah there were I guess a few other reasons why it never quite happened for him internationally but yeah a phenomenal natural finisher no doubt about it there's a lot of love for uh, Robbie Fowler Rooney also in his column goes on to explain how he doesn't expect his goal scoring records to last for long he said how did I become a record breaker if I wasn't a natural scorer time he says I played for United for 13 years England for 15 years I had time to break those records and looking back I should have scored more I don't think he says it will take long for Harry Kane to claim my England record and it would be a proud moment for me I've never been a selfish player and it would be great for England for Harry to get there so Bobby Charlton had to wait 50 years. I hope it's not so long for me. The United record might last longer simply because players don't stay at clubs as long as they used to. Mind you, he says, if Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo came to Old Trafford for a swan song, <laughs> they would probably break it in three or four years. So is Rooney right, Gregor? Was his longevity his greatest quality rather than his ability? No, no chance. I mean, <laughs> longevity... Is what gets you the records and makes you, you know, a, a true great. And as we've just alluded to, some of these, some of these players, their inability to kind of keep playing at the top level. Although saying that, I mean, Rooney, Rooney is sometimes mocked by in some quarters because he's not managed to stay at the summit for as long as someone like Cristiano Ronaldo, um, which is ludicrous, but it, it does happen. Um, so no, look, I, I, I played against Rooney actually when he was fifteen or sixteen in the FA Youth Cup, and he was like. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. That kind of unique, pretty unique combination of like bullish strength and complete mastery of the football. And he, he, was, he was a remarkable player. I think one thing is, one of the reasons he's not kind of still playing at the top level in the Premier League is that I think over the period of his career, the game became so much faster and uh you know, I think I think everyone everyone around him became more athletic and and quicker and stronger, and and I think he had to kind of tailor his game to adapt to that a little bit. So, 
but no, I mean he's he's one of the the best talents that England has ever seen. So that's that's his biggest strength, not his longevity. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Now, it is certainly worth buying a copy of today's Times for one article alone. All our eyes were drawn to this one today. An in-depth look at a classic battle between a proud Scotsman in the name of Robertson and a Spanish legend <laughs> called Iniesta. But it's not Andrew Robertson that we're talking about. It is, in fact, our very own Gregor. <laughs> I love it, Gregor. You, you have this little smirky little laugh because you know we're going to talk about you. Um, <laughs> Before we get into the article then, Gregor, you've got to set the scene for us and tell us how you ended up taking on Andreas Iniesta. Uh, so there's a there's a documentary about Iniesta on this week, so I thought, well, actually, any chance I get, I'll, I'll, uh, I will take to <laughs> to regale this, this tale of meeting the little maestro. It was September 2004 um, at the home of Deportivo Alcoyano. I don't really know who they are either. Uh, near Valencia, there's about 5,000 fans, and it was a, a friendly between Spain's under-21s and Scotland's under-21s. So I, I doubt I doubt it'll make the documentary, but it's um, certainly a game I will never forget. Um, I think Iniesta had made his debut two two years before for Barcelona. Played about 30-odd games for them by then. Um, and he was just on the cusp of making his... His real kind of stamp on on the Barca team. I think he played thirty seven games that season, um, and we we knew about him and and we'd seen kind of the odd cameo off the bench in La Liga. We knew a little about him and we knew he was a huge talent. But we were actually more excited to be playing against Cesc Fabregas, who just uh, made his debut. He kind of made a made his mark for Arsenal in the Premier League. But uh, as soon as the game started, that that opinion changed <laughs> because. Um, I mean, he was—he was unlike. Well, it's very hard to explain. I think I feel that he kind of—I wrote in the piece that when that one of the hardest things for a defender, I I played in a back three that night for Scotland, is that, and he was a number ten. Is is that the very finest players kind of seem to be able to master time and space a little bit different to anyone else, and it felt like every time he got on the ball, I was left in. All of us were left in a huge conundrum whether to kind of confront him um, and leave a space in behind or to sit off. And I've got the game on DVD actually, and I'm watching back. And there's there's some kind of moments that were, you know, you, such recognisable passages of play or traits that he has that you have become so familiar watching him since for Barcelona and Spain. The way he kind of recycles the ball and kind of wears wears you down just by the kind of speed with which he moves the ball around. And then sometimes the way he just surges through the middle and looks for the little one-twos that he, he would kind of go on to do with Messi so well. I think Sergio Garcia was up front that night. So watching it back was quite surreal, actually. It was kind of... I remember we all came off thinking, oh, my God, he's, this, guy's, this guy is a real player. Um, but watching it back, there were so many things that were so became so familiar um, as, to one of these players who became one of the greatest midfielders of his generation and maybe any generation. And and you, have you mentioned the free kick that you gave away? <laughs> no, I was going to keep quiet about that. 
Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he, in this early second half, he kind of we took the lead actually. Gary O'Connor, uh, he was of Hibs then. He later played for Birmingham City. I'm sure some people might remember him. He scored a header in the in the forty third minute, I think. Um, so we held our own in the first half, and then uh, David Clarkson, our other striker, uh, who later played for Bristol City, actually, he got into two tangles with Sergio Ramos, who was playing right back that day, who uh, obviously was already master of the dark arts. Uh, who was, you know, he ro- <laughs> rolled around on the floor. Um, he kind of almost, he almost invited the the tangles as well. Anyway, Clark Clarky got sent off just before half time, so you can imagine the second half was very hard. Uh, and just early in the second half, Iniesta got on the ball, turned, threaded a beautiful ball through to to Garcia, and I was kind of making a, a desperate recovery tackle. And as I wrote in the piece, I was watching back, and I'm still certain I got the ball. But anyway, I conceded a free kick, twenty yards out, and he just arced it beautifully into the top corner. Um, and you know. That's what happens at the, that level. They punish you, I'm afraid. So I tell you, Gregor, your your piece is slightly different because you just said there. <laughs> I was still certain that I got the ball, but in your piece, you say I was certain I touched the ball, and the slow mo replay backed me up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want to sound bitter on uh, <laughs> on broadcast here. <laughs> no, of course not. Uh, but the game obviously finished three one to Spain uh, in the end, and four players on the pitch that night would go on to lift the World Cup in 2010, where Iniesta scored the winner against the Netherlands uh, as well. Um, Matt, when you think of Iniesta, is he one of, or if not the most complete midfielder of his generation? I think there's so much we could say about him. He's probably probably Spain's greatest ever player, isn't he? Which, you know, considering the success they've had in in um, the last 10, 20 years, you know, is, is an extraordinary accolade. I think also it sort of goes beyond that. It goes back to that whole beauty of that Barcelona team which was you know a of course we all know about that extraordinary um you know ball retention passing um creativity they had but also small players I mean I think he yeah he doesn't look like a classic footballer you know he's what five at seven probably about ten and a half eleven stone tops um uh you know he sort of could look spindly he could look like the sort of guy that you know You'd think it could be sort of knocked off the ball, but but he had he, he just didn't lose it. He just never lost it. Whatever tight spot he was in, however much people tried to crowd him or to ruffle him or to get on top of him, he just always seemed to be able to turn away, to do something clever with it, to see a pass. To it, it was just and to see a sort of say a, a sort of non stereotypical looking guy succeed like that and become one of the greatest players in the world. I think had its own sort of strength really mm. Gregor where do you think he'll rank in the list of all time midfielders I mean right up there I, I think he's in the same conversation as someone like although it's slightly behind as a Dan but I think you know I agree I think he probably is above a Xavi and someone like Pirlo as well it's kind of they're different players but it's very close but really apart from that it's, I, I've struggled to think of of a, a better midfielder, really, and look, midfielder, midfield is a position where there's such a wide kind of variety of uh, of skills and talents that that you need, in, you know, different types of players. But he had he had a lot of what someone like Xavi had, and as, as Matt was saying there about, as I said, recycling the ball, immaculate control, um, 
which is really it wears down the opposition. If they're dominating the ball so much, and then he had this that kind of little killer instinct as well, an ability to surge forward and run with it. He was deceptively quick, um, and and still the kind of composure to to just cushion a the perfectly weighted through ball to to a teammate or to to take hit off a little one too. So I mean, it, it's very you know it's hard. It's very these are very hard comparisons to make, but I'd say behind us, Zidane. There are very few players, very few midfielders uh, who who surpass Iniesta. I thought it was a brilliant piece and made me, incre- yeah, obviously very envious of so much about Gregor. But that piece, this piece, sort of, you know, took it to the absolute top top of the pile. But I was I was slightly baffled why they couldn't find a picture of 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 him with Iniesta. <laughs> maybe maybe yeah, just couldn't that? couldn't quite get close enough. Maybe. <laughs> Indeed, I think I even wrote that in the piece. He never felt far away, but never close enough to touch. <laughs> oh, oh, very, very good. Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to Gregor and to Matt as well. You, you may find yourself with more time on your hands in the coming weeks. So do remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism. It's just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. All you have to do is search The Times subscription for more information. We'll be back with you on Thursday for the very latest game podcast, where we will hear, of course, that Gregor has made it to 49 push-ups. But between now and then stay safe and keep well. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.